On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, Brent discusses some of the most important and interesting topics of the day as they relate to finance, the economy, and beyond. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Brent, how are you? I'm doing great today. How are you doing, Eric? I'm excited. <laughs> Again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really before. excited. I think yeah. I might be more excited about this one than, than any that we've done so far. Well, I was just going to bring that up because like for the last two weeks, you've been telling me, you're not going to believe this guest I've got coming on on Friday. I got this guest coming on on Friday. I'm like, okay, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> it's <laughs> Friday, baby. Let's go. I mean, so who did you bring on the podcast today? I brought an uh, officer, Dion Joseph, and he is an LAPD cop, and he's got arguably... Yeah maybe one of the toughest beats out there. He's been covering Skid Row for now 17 or 18 years. Is that right, Dion? Yes. Uh, actually, uh, 26 years uh, with uh, in the city, uh, 24 years in the Skid Row area. Which 24 in Skid Row. So I, yes. so I radically underestimated the amount of time he spent down there. Mm. And, um, it's, okay. it's all good. And, and, and my, I don't know. This is the first I've actually met Dion, and I'm, I'm super excited that, that he joined us today. And, and my initial connection with him was really in 2020. And it was just seeing uh, some of the comments that he was putting up on LinkedIn. It's, you know, to, to backtrack a little bit, obviously, everyone had just been, you know, the first couple months of, uh, of COVID, the first couple months of uh, two weeks to flatten the curve, I guess. And here we are two years later. But that had obviously given people a big sucker punch and, 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 uh, and, and really, I think, traumatized people in a lot of way, ways. But then George Floyd happened the end of May. And suddenly we went from being sort of, you know, locked down in our houses and being concerned about that to seeing, you know, from the outside looking in, really seeing the fabric of society get ripped apart in a way that as um, that I never thought we'd really see in this country. The amount, the amount of anger, the amount of violence, uh, the amount of vitriol I thought was, was pretty unbelievable and, and for me really disheartening. But the fact that so much of it was directed at our, at our law enforcement officers really concerned me because I think that that you know, they, they, they call it the thin, thin blue line. And, and, you know, as we've talked about, Eric, I've been to 50 some countries. I've seen some pretty rough places. And that veneer of civilization is a lot thinner than most people think. Uh, and seeing some of that get torn apart for me, for me, it was really disheartening. And anyway, Officer Joseph uh, then came in. There's a lot of comments that you put on LinkedIn, I think, you know, really maybe recognizing what some of the issues are that people were angry about, but also, but also um, consider, but also realizing you know that the police and, and the people that are that are policing our communities and keeping us safe, you guys aren't you guys aren't the enemy here, and um, so I've been following been following uh, Dion now for for a couple of years and about a month or so ago just sent him a LinkedIn message and said hey man I, I would just love to have a conversation with you, and I'm I'm really honored quite frankly that, you, that you're carving some time out of your day which I know is what you got going on is a lot more important than this but the fact you're willing to have this conversation from the bottom of my heart thank you. It's my, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So, so let me ask you this. Tell me, and there's a couple of things I want to talk about today, but tell me what that was like for you in a law enforcement capacity when all of a sudden you go from being concerned about disease because you know you guys were frontline workers. You, you weren't work, working in front of a keyboard. You were out there still every single day to now you're dealing with a real, really volatile situation in one of the country's largest cities. What, what was that like on the ground for you? It was uh, the most disheartening time in my 26 years as a law enforcement officer. And I've been through some things. Uh, we've had the 
what we call the Rampart scandal when I came, or well, when I came on, we first had the Rodney King incident, and uh, that was post Rodney King, and then we had what's called the Rampart scandal. I don't call it the Rampart scandal; I call it the Rafael Perez scandal. It was a couple of bad cops who made an entire agency look horrible, and I we survived a lot of things. But then when the pandemic hit, I remember right before the uh, George Floyd incident. Uh, I remember at eight o'clock every night, as we were driving through the streets uh, where I work, people would hang out of their windows and clap for us, thanking us for being out there as first responders holding the line while this pandemic was going on and everybody was locked away. And then like overnight, when that horrible, horrible video came out, uh, what Derek Chauvin uh, uh, did to George Floyd, as well as he himself, uh, they both had a part in his, in his demise. Uh, and I watched it myself and I became angry with all the years of experience I had. I was watching that video screaming, get off with the guy, you know, put him on his side, you know, cause that's just what we were trained to do. And when it was over, I looked at my partners and we looked at each other and said, it's over and get your helmets, get your batons ready. And sure enough, uh, it didn't take but a couple of days for us to feel the, vitriol that I've never felt before. Uh, I've never felt any this much hatred in my life. And I understood why it happened. And here's the reason. Everybody was locked inside of their house. They were in their silo. And when you can't go outside, you have nothing to do. What are you left with? Your computer, your smart device, and biased news sources. Uh, And that was the perfect moment for individuals who were anti-police, anti-everything, to spread their poison. You know, you got some poor guy in his basement, living in his mom's basement, smoking weed and switching between you porn and cop hate videos. What are you going to end up with? And uh, so I remember (laughs) driving down the street two days later and middle fingers, everybody hating your guts. For me, I kind of survived it because in my community, the community knew who I was and and they basically, I have a a family-like relationship with them. But whenever I stepped out of my area, you could feel the tension with a knife. Every time we stopped somebody, cameras out, cursing at you, yelling at you, throwing things at you, exacerbating situations uh, where we need everybody to, we need the suspect we're dealing with to hear one voice for the safest outcome. Instead, you had opportunists come with their cameras filming saying, don't kill him. Hey, hey, run, guy, run. And it, it was just horrific. And then came the riots immediately after that. And I would have taken as many rocks and bottles and FUs and fingers. I would have taken all of that if I knew the city I served was was going to support me in trying to maintain order. But unfortunately, not only did the public turn their back on us completely, uh, across this country, many civic leaders, elected officials, people who are supposed to have sense and common sense and, 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 and reason, they completely turned their back on us and literally allowed us all to be pinatas uh, for a small growing loud group of loud voices who are basically anti-America, anti-police, anti-everything. And they seize the opportunity. And I'll never, I, 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 I'm a Christian man. I'm a man of faith. I have to forgive, but I will never, ever forget our civic leaders turning on us and, uh, and allowing us to be abused. I saw officers get air conditioners thrown at them, spat on, have urine and fecal matter thrown at them. One of my partners during the protest, protest lost an eye, had his, a laser pointed in his eye, and it completely devastated his career. This man can't work anymore. Uh, I remember every day on the line, not knowing if I was going to be next. Uh, there was a suspect riding around in a Jeep 
targeting police officers, uh, uh, particularly my agency. And they actually shot one on the west end of the city. And he was headed downtown. Uh, and uh, thankfully, he was apprehended. And the most chilling moment for me was there was a citizen, because it's not just the police officers who suffered, uh, but when the police officers suffered, the citizens, citizenry suffers as well. Uh, a, a man, an innocent man, was murdered uh, right down the street from a major protest. And he was shot in his car. And uh, the fear, you know, of what if this crowd comes our way? And because they're in such a heightened state of anger, they think we did it. You know, so we had to really rush a crime scene, you know, to try to get this crime scene taken care of and uh, get the victim uh, uh, taken away. Uh, but that just devastated me. Uh, and I, I don't think we're going to recover from it for, for a long time. I know right now what they're saying is, OK, OK, we need to refund the police. That's not the issue. You can give us all the funding back. What we need is support. What we, we need is support. Too. We need we need the trust. We need uh, the system that tells us to go out there and fight crime to, to recognize again that there's a negative exception in every profession. Absolutely. But you cannot pay 800,000 men and women who get up every day and put their lives on the line with such a broad brush that you injure public safety for every human being in the country. And that's what we're seeing across the country with, in major cities. And, uh, and I don't care how much money you throw at it, if the politicians don't do a 180 with the word that come out of their mouth, uh, mouth, this thing won't change uh, for a very long time. Now, the community that you police is arguably one of the most disadvantaged communities in the entire country. Uh, for, for those, I mean, I've, I've spent the last week or so prepping for this call. You've been on the 700 Club. You've been on, you know, there's been documentaries where they followed you on your beat there in Skid Row. One of the things that has struck me as I've watched these videos is the love that you have for these people and the love and respect they have for you is really two way street. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so when this was breaking out, you mentioned that in your community, cause they knew who you were, um, right. that level of anger was not that high. Uh, I remember, I recall a post you put on LinkedIn maybe a couple months ago where you had somebody from outside the community. Um, I think it was probably a couple of younger white kids, if I might be right about that, that yes. they came, were giving you a hard time. And it was, right. it was the people that you were serving, probably a few of which you had arrested in the past, that came to your defense. Can, where is the agitation coming from? Here's where it, it's coming from. It's coming from three major sources. Uh, the one is our media. Obviously, our media has now become activated. They're activists now. And it doesn't matter if it's right or left. I'm not trying to target one network over the other. But all of it, journalism has basically, objective journalism has passed away and died a long time ago. So now we're at a place where it's overly politicized journaling from one side to the next, and, and they have to get ratings and eyeballs. So they'll say the most salacious things to get views, and they'll say headlines, white cop shoots 18-year-old black baby, and then somewhere in a small print, they'll say, oh, by the way, there was an AK-47 there. But what do people read? White cop shoots black baby who wanted to be president of the United States. So that's part of it. That's part of it. And they're slant and they're biased. But you also have uh, social activism right now. And of course, every movement needs a villain. Black Lives uh, what, what did Hitler need? Hitler, the most evil man ever. His villain was the Jewish people. And he uses hatred for them as a catalyst to take over, uh, try to take over the world and murder 6 million Jews and 10 million other, uh, 4 million others. Uh, you know, um, uh, the KKK, their, their enemy, they created their enemy. And that was what? Black people who were freed slaves. 
you know, and every movement needs a villain and BLM needed the police. And it was basically a tag where it situation and every shooting we were guilty before innocent. Uh, you know, it's like, so by the time the truth came out or the facts came out on almost every shooting during that, since 2014, uh, we were guilty uh, before the facts came out. And then by the time the facts came out, your city's already burned to the ground and public trust has been community, uh, completely eroded. But that's their goal, to create a wider chasm, uh, to create a wide chasm and to get where they need to go. And I actually had uh, one of them tell me that. They said, we know most of you guys are bad, <laughs> but this is how we're getting what we want. They so what end, though? What, what, who, uh, who benefits by burning the cities down and destroying communities? Well, this is the this is who benefits from it. Them in their minds, their whole goal is let's destroy and replace. You know, and this is not the first time they tried this. You know, they've been trying it for years. But once they destroy what they replace it with, it's far worse. <laughs> you know, so sure. in their minds, they are the solution. You know, they're the solution. What they've been taught, and that stems from. The third and most important college campuses and unfortunately our college campuses across the country uh they've been hijacked by one one-sided narrative a more progressive narrative and a lot of these teachers have tenure and you can't get rid of them so you send your your kid to school to be an engineer and they come out a political arsonist how does that happen because they're listening to one-sided narratives about policing and i'll, I'll prove it to you Years ago, I was one of the most sought after officers to go talk either to college campuses or they would have students come to me. And I took about 3,500 students over 10 years on tours of Skid Row to discuss policing and why things are what they are, contrary to what you've been told. And at least their teachers, though they were progressive, they were open minded enough to allow me to come and fill in the blanks for a couple of hours. And I was able to change a lot of hearts and minds through the truth. Now uh, that's completely changed. I can't get on a college campus. I remember I was supposed to speak, I think it's Occidental. And I remember I got an email saying, sorry, uh, I know that you know we had you scheduled, but unfortunately the, the students don't want you there. And I figured out why it was their professor. Uh, and so, so we have college campuses who are indoctrinating people towards an extreme form of progressivism. Uh, we have the media and we also have uh, advocates. And in a way they're all kind of working together they're all kind of working in this in this synergy to create their view of what America is. But what their view of America is, 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 is basically everything they're fighting against fascism. Sure. I, I think that, you know, um, to, to vintage myself here, I guess I'm 48 years old. And when Rodney King occurred, um, I was in college at that point. After college, I went to New York City, and it was it was a great time in New York City because you know Giuliani had come in, uh, the city was getting cleaned up. It was it was it was a great time to be living in New York City, and you saw I think the same really in Southern California and Los Angeles, where right. big U.S. cities became very safe. So even in the wake of what occurred with Rodney King, you know, the, and, and I, I would argue it was largely due to policing. Please and tell me if I'm wrong with that. But what was the catalyst? Because you've seen now two changes. What was the first catalyst that that allowed these cities to clean up, allowed you know the rule of law those to take effect, and the cities to thrive and prosper because of that? And then and then it's since, since then it's gone sideways. And, and it was it was the catalyst what occurred in what what occurred um, in in twenty fourteen when we first started to see the, the onset of BLM the other way. But but how how do we make this shift so fast both ways? Because things got really good for a while. Yeah, well, the catalyst came from the 1980s. I, this is from what I've seen, uh, just as a civilian, all the way to being a police officer. The 1980s 
and 90s was some of the most dangerous times for anyone of color living in urban communities. And the reason why was a crack epidemic. Uh, number one re question I get asked by a lot of people and news reporters and college students, why are so many African-Americans in Skid Row? And I say, you don't know? You don't remember 1982? 1982 is when the crack epidemic took steam. Some gang members uh, took powder cocaine, cut it, sold it cheap, powerful high, but a short duration, which hooked people uh, in inner city communities uh, like nothing we'd ever seen. And from that was a level of violence, not only from the addicts who would do anything to get the drugs, but also the drug dealers to keep control. They needed violence to control territory and also uh, their customers as well as their uh, quote unquote employees. So you saw a very violent time where people were dying left and right. So what people don't remember is uh, around the 90s, we had, it wasn't white Republicans that brought the crime bill forward. And that's what people need to know. The, this was called for by black leaders. <laughs> black leaders were saying, you guys don't care about us. You're letting us die in the street. So what are you going to do about it? And of course, politicians see a way in to get votes. So politicians jump in and say, okay, we're going to help. And the crime bill was created. And uh, the crime bill literally saved lives. I mean, like it or hate it, we were on pace to lose 129,000 uh, uh, African-Americans if the crime bill hadn't been enacted. So there was this zero tolerance stance towards crime, which worked and did it have its negative impacts? Absolutely. Do I agree that uh, some of the laws were too harsh? Some people were being sent away for too long for nonviolent crimes? I agree. But what was the payoff? 129,000 lives uh, saved, streets becoming safer. And then you we started to lose ground a little bit around uh, I'd say around the uh, early 1999-2000, and that was due to the scandal that uh, hit our city uh, with my agency. And so our, the law enforcement agency's hands were tied. We were told, I was literally told by a watch commander, hey, you can't make any drug sales arrests. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I remember I said, forget this, telling me not to arrest a drug dealer, like telling a fish not to drink water. That's what I do for my community. So I arrested a drug dealer and it took me three hours to find somebody to sign my arrest report. That's how uh, pro, uh, uh, non-proactive they wanted us to be due to the controversy. But here was the good thing. Because crime got so bad at the time, my city became the number one murder capital in the country. And, I, and people don't remember that, but I think around the early 2000s, uh, late 1990s, we became the murder capital of the country. And it got so bad that even our detractors that worked to tie our hands, the ACLU, one of their uh, leaders said, look, I think we went too far here. People are dying. We need to let the police do their job. So thankfully, we had a uh, chief come in from uh, the city of New York, a great man who I respect, Bratton, and he worked with the civil rights attorney. And uh, we were able to implement something called the broken windows theory, which worked in New York. Worked in and, New York, uh, sure. It, it, it worked just fine. Basically, it was zero tolerance for crime, less improved quality of life. But what I liked about it, and here's where we saw a 13-year drop in crime, it was a three-pronged approach. It wasn't just going out there and arresting people or throwing them in jail and throwing them and walking away. No, it was enforcement, number one. It was enhancement. And it was also outreach. So enhancements means painting out graffiti, uh, making sure people who violate that stay in jail. You know, you know, if someone stabs somebody and it says you're going to jail for five years, then they're going to be there for five years and for the purpose of them not being able to hurt anybody else. And, and then enhancements, street lights, tree trimming, 
fixing sidewalks, slats in the sidewalks for the handicapped. Uh, and then the last part, which is most important to me, was outreach. A lot of people don't know that where I worked, we had a program called SOS. And SOS meant streets or services. We knew that the, what was driving our violent crime and poor quality of life was the people who were drug addicts. So when we arrested them, if they didn't kill anybody, uh, it was a misdemeanor, uh, we, we gave you a choice. We take you to jail, send you through the system, or you complete this 21-day program for whatever your issue is, alcohol, drugs, mental illness, or whatever. And if you complete it, we'll drop the charges if it never existed. And it actually worked. We were able to be proactive and aggressive with enforcement. We're also able to help a lot of people. We ended up reducing homelessness. <laughs> you know, and people, I, I cannot believe that people have such short memories. We were able to reduce homelessness and crime and death where I worked uh, about 40%, death 33%. And I'm asked, I ask people all the time, why would you be against it? Look, I get it. What we do as police officers isn't sexy. You want sexy, you call the fire department. They look good on calendars. They <laughs> rescue kids from trees. No, I love the fire department. They're great guys. But no, seriously, uh, you know, well, law enforcement officers, our job is to go out there and deal with the failures of society, when society breaks. Our job is to keep that uh, our finger in the dam to keep society from breaking. And when we respond, no, it's not going to be pretty. But uh, most of the time, it's not going to be pretty, but it's necessary. And it actually worked. I saw people getting clean off drugs. I saw gangsters respecting drug programs. It was an amazing time. And then uh, the beginning, the, the beginning of the fall, uh, for everybody listening, began starting around 2011 when we had our governor, Jerry Brown, come in. And he uh, they always had it in the back of their minds that they were going to shut down the prison system, but they had to do it in small incremental ways, even to the point of convincing voters that they needed that, that to getting voters involved to do it. But it started with Jerry Brown and Jerry Brown came up with something called uh, AB 109 and Assembly Bill 109 essentially uh, uh, basically cut down the prison population and took the prison population, some of the prison population off the backs of the state and put them on the backs of the counties across the state. And here was the problem with that. Many of the counties, probation departments, already had an overwhelming caseload. They couldn't handle the criminals they, they were even supervising, okay? Uh, but at least the tool they had was if they violated probation, they could send them back to prison for a certain amount of time. Now you have thousands of new inmates uh, overburdening the system. So now what they did was they put these flimsy ankle bracelets on these guys and put their finger in their face and said, stay out of trouble. These guys left, cut these ankle braces off, and now many of them didn't even have to check in with a live person. They got to go, they, had, they got to swipe a card at a kiosk. A kiosk doesn't know that you have three ounces of cocaine in your pocket. A kiosk doesn't know that you just raped a woman before you got there, but you swipe the card, show them that you checked in, you're good. So that was the beginning of the fall. We noticed a little bit of increase in crime then, but then came. 2014, the death of Mike Brown and the emergence of Black Lives Matter spinning their narrative that law enforcement and actual enforcement itself <clears throat> was the reason why uh, things are so bad. And our politicians bought off on it. And we had uh, Proposition 47, which was authored and supported by our current district attorney, George Gascon. And what that did was it turned crimes that were once considered serious into non-serious crimes. And what that did, it created a lever to release a lot of, it was retroactive, to release a lot of individuals back into the streets. Let's say you could have had four stabbings in your rap sheet, but if your last crime was a theft, you were now considered a nonviolent criminal.
So a lot of violent criminals, voters were misled once again, and a lot of violent criminals were being let out. And now they were realizing they were able to commit property crime, property crimes, and they, there would be no penalty or no serious penalty. And then came the nail in the coffin for uh, for us to a degree, and that was Proposition Fifty Seven. They convinced the voters to turn uh, things that are considered violent crimes into nonviolent crimes. Now, let me ask you, gentlemen, a question: If someone walked into your studio right now with an AK forty seven and started firing, but by the grace of God they missed and no one got hurt, would you consider that a violent crime? If I'm yes, absolutely, without question. Under Prop Fifty Seven, that's not a violent crime. If your loved one or even yourself was at a bar and they slipped GHB in your drink and took you home and did God knows what to you, uh, and you don't remember it, but you know something happened, would you consider that a violent crime? Absolutely. Under Prop 57, that's not a serious crime. So they listed this whole list of things that are no longer serious violent crimes. They're still felonies. But once again, another lever to release more criminals. So now we have criminals getting out and now a complete inability to send them back in. And what made it even worse was our uh, uh, then Kamala Harris buying into the no bail uh, uh, situation. You know, the, the, uh, you don't have to pay bail. Bail is racist. So now it's just a complete revolving door. And now criminals have become more emboldened than I've ever seen before. And for the first time in about 13 years, I'm scared for my family. You know, not only am I scared for the people I serve, Every day I leave my house, I pray my sons are driving down the street and someone feels like they can just shoot them because they know the consequences aren't going to be as severe or rob them. And that's exactly what's happening in California right now. And uh, I think we have a chance to reverse that. Uh, but if it doesn't, it's going to be a long two decades. It's going to take about two decades to fix this, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, you've obviously got these changes and, and, and the, the, the dam begins to break in 2011. But. You gave one example, obviously, fear for your own personal safety and also your family. Give me a few other examples of what that looks like on the ground for the community that you're serving. And, and also, one of the things I've been seeing on, on television is, you know, people being that they're leaving posh restaurants in L.A., people that in the past felt like they were immune from all this. Most of the people, quite frankly, mm -hmm. that, that are going to listen to this are going to feel like they're immune from some of this. But now they're being mm -hmm. followed home because they were wearing a nice watch and then they're, and they're oh. being robbed in their homes. Um, yeah, this was happening. This was happening long before that, three or four years before that. I'll tell you a couple of stories. Uh, uh, there was a uh, young lady who was stabbed in her sternum and the stab wound was about seven inches long. Her intestines were hanging out. And because she was homeless, uh, the district attorney uh, did, decided not to file. And and I saw the disposition and I was angry because the disposition said uh, uh insufficient evidence. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I literally had to call that DA on the carpet and, and make them refile that case. But things like that were happening. I had a young man who was uh, uh, from the LBGTQ community. And I don't care how anybody feels one way or the other. You know, my job says protect and serve all. I don't care if you're black, white, Christian, Jew, Muslim, gay, straight. I don't care who you are. And this man also suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, but he tended to like me. You know, I was able, I was one of the few officers who could control him when he was out, when he was off of his meds. Constantly, he was bullied and terrorized because, you know, he would wear Daisy Dukes and tight shorts. And oftentimes I had to intervene. Uh, I remember one day he was off of his meds and he got beat up uh, by a, a bunch of gang members in broad daylight. It was one of the most horrific beatings I'd ever seen uh, on camera. And uh, he just walked around the corner and he saw me. 
parked uh, and I was talking to a pregnant woman uh, on Skid Row and he pulls out a sharp object and runs at her to stab her to take out whatever, what, whatever those guys did to him onto her. And she didn't say anything to him, but hello. So I had to jump on him, tackle him. And we ended up putting him into a, a 14 day mental health hold. Uh, they let him out early, unfortunately. A few months later, he's walking down the street and a parolee starts bullying him again. And this time he decides to stand up to his attacker. He was stabbed multiple times. And over four months, uh, he was dying in a hospital. And four months later, he passed away. And we're seeing more of this now. Uh, it's more intense. It's more uh, frequent, more shock shockingly random than I've ever seen it. People just don't care because they know when I'm seeing uh, bank robbers just run into stores by the droves and people getting shot, people sitting down having dinner. Uh, and I always told people, if you guys don't deal with it here, you're going to be dealing with it at your front door. I don't care where you live in the Skid Row or the Palisades, it's coming. Well, guess what? We have people in the Palisades, Beverly Hills, who are now getting robbed, followed homes. We had a uh, uh, philanthropist get murdered uh, in our own home. Uh, you know, so now people are waking up and I always say this, a lot of the times it was the filthy rich who are getting behind a lot of these, these reckless propositions and, and laws because they felt some kind of guilt about the plight of the poor and people of color. Now they've completely done a 180 and said, I'm sorry, this isn't working, but I'm just thinking, I'm glad they've changed their minds. I'm glad they're supporting us now to a degree. But look at all the lives that were lost. Look at all the women who were raped, the kids who were shot up in the street. Look at all that's happened. Uh, and I think one of the most disturbing ones was, uh, I remember, uh, you know, the media is working against us. So the biggest newspaper in the city uh, penned an article that stated that uh, our officers in a certain area, we had a specialized units to go to an area to stop a lot of the murders. So of course they write the article with a racial tinge to it. And of course that was the flavor of the day. And it, it caused our civic leaders to say, oh, well, let's get those officers out of here. So they took the officers out of there based on a lie. And here was the result of that. In a span of two weeks, we had 34 people shot in, that, in the same area where they were taken out. 26 of those people died, including a rapper by the name of Nipsey Hussle. I'm sure you heard of that, that murder. And that just shows that we were not the problem. The police aren't the problem. We're not policing based on race or, uh, and I'm not saying there isn't a negative exception of police officers out there who do that. We police based on data. And if our data says that in a certain location, three block radius, 12 people were murdered over the weekend, Common sense is where are you going to put those resources? You're going to put those resources there to quash it. And also you've got to factor in demographics. This is what I love when I talk to college students. I blow their mind with this. I work in Skid Row. Skid Row is predominantly African-American. Uh, I wish that I could snap my fingers and all this crime, all this lawlessness would stop where I work. Because I know the majority of people who live there are decent people. That's why I'm there. And let's say that it did stop and that spirit went to Chinatown. And in Chinatown, people were stabbing each other, smoking crack in broad daylight, uh, raping each other, burglarizing each other. Where would our resources be? In Chinatown. And what would be the demographic of the people we'd arrest in that area? Mostly, probably Chinese and Hispanic. So their skin is not their sin. It's the level of criminality in their area. And if you take any resources from those areas that are uh, wroth with violence, uh, uh, people, more people are going to die. So that proves emphatically that the police were never the problem. Not to say that they weren't problematic officers that we all 
uh, should be working to root out, which we are, which we are. Most agencies are doing their best, but here's the deal. Police officers are nothing more than a microcosm of society. And by that, I mean, do you believe that in the United States of America, with 330 million people, that the vast majority of people, whether they're Black, white, Hispanic, gay, straight, Jew, Muslim, transgender, are decent people out of all of those people? Do you believe that, sir? I do, yeah. Now, do you also believe that out of that 330 million people, that there's a negative sec- exception, maybe in the low, in the high 100,000s to maybe the low millions, who are the ones out there causing chaos, wreaking havoc, terrorizing? Do you believe that? I do. Okay. Where do law enforcement agencies get their people from? The American public. And I can assure you that most of the people we bring in are decent, hardworking people uh, who want to make a difference. But of course, when you have human beings running anything, all hell's going to break loose at some point. I mean, doctors. Doctors killed 450,000 people in one year through malpractice, accidents, and misdiagnosis. Most of the people who were killed were people of color. Why is there no hatred towards doctors? In one year, law enforcement across the country only killed 1,000. And most of those were white. Uh, what about military? We love our military. I'll support our military. They're heroes to me. But let's not pretend that the military, people in the military haven't gone out and done atrocious things. Teachers, I support teachers. But guess what? Don't tell me that every week you don't hear about a teacher molesting a student, sleeping with someone's 17-year-old daughter, or, or indoctrinating them with extreme uh, uh, or grooming them. We hear that every week. But we don't want to throw away teachers, do we? So why are we holding police officers to that unreasonable standard? And, and the police officers, once again, they are that blue line. Without law enforcement officers, our law enforcement, our society crumbles. And that's what we're seeing right now in law enforcement. Now, in terms of what you're seeing, obviously, there's for sure an attack on the law enforcement community. But the actual crime that's occurring on the ground is, is the genesis of this. Is it mental health? Is it drug abuse? Is it both? Or is it, and this is something that's a little bit more esoteric, but in the last couple of years, I've given this a lot of thought. Is it just the fact that there's evil in the world and we haven't seen it that much in the last, up until recently? Yeah, uh, I'm going to say a combination of all three. So your last point, yes. Uh, if you give evil people or the criminal element one inch, they'll take three yards. Uh, three yards. Historically, they've always done so. So, and that's what happened. Uh, based on a false narrative, They've basically given criminal element three yards to do whatever they want to do to coddle them or feel sorry for them. And as a result, now I'm seeing people who weren't violent becoming violent because they know that they're going to go to jail. They're going to be there for an hour and get released. So that's part of it. But also, yes, mental illness is a huge issue. And it's always been a huge, huge issue. Uh, In the 1970s, they closed down the asylums, which to one degree, I understand why they were cruel places, a lot of them. But society's answer is always to throw the baby out with the bathwater instead of fixing the bathwater and help the baby. And that's what California did in other places. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. So now you have people in the streets. Uh, Many of them fell into the loving arms of family and friends uh, who tried to help them. But you had many who were kicked out and sent to or wandered into places like Skid Row because they had quote unquote services there. And here's the thing. When, when When these folks are outside of the asylum, outside of the hospital, they don't have someone watching them or saying you need to take your medication. And they stop taking their medication because they feel lethargic after taking it. And in places like Skid Row, you can't be lethargic because you constantly got to be aware of your surroundings. So they'll throw away, sell, or give away their prescribed medication and then start self-medicating on the hard stuff like crack cocaine, methamphetamines, 
and other hard drugs, even marijuana, which may not affect you or me if we smoke it, but someone who is a paranoid schizophrenic, it has disastrous consequences. And here's the result of that. Uh, you know, I just want to say to your listeners that as a law enforcement officer, being paranoid schizophrenic is not a crime. I've never arrested anybody for being paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, being bipolar is not a crime. Being depressed. But when those things be crack cocaine, methamphetamines, it has this effect. I'm responding to a call of someone who is mentally ill who just stabbed somebody. And now they're ready to stab me because they think I'm a six foot alligator with a Santa Claus hat on, you know, and they don't see me as a cop. They see me as one of the voices in their head. And people go, well, you guys should have training. My God, we have training. It's, it's Skid Row. You have to have training to be able to, uh, mental health training to be able to go out in the streets and work with these individuals. It has nothing to do with a lack of compassion or training. What do you do when there's a chemical buffer between you and the person in crisis. If the person was just paranoid schizophrenic, I could handle that. That's easy for me. I speak paranoia all the time to get people to comply and, and go along with the program so that we don't have to use force. Uh, but when they're on meth and now spice and now fentanyl and all this other stuff, there's even the most trained mental health clinician will not approach them. So that's a lie when they tell you, oh no, we need mental health experts. We tried that. You're talking to an officer who wrote an article that spurned more outreach of the mental health to get them to come out of their cubicles, come out of their office and reach out to the people. And they worked with us. And uh, whenever we saw somebody who was in crisis, they didn't go up there and start talking to them first. You know what they did? Officer, can you go hook them up? Because we had to detain them first before we could reach them. They're not going to approach people when they're in an uh, altered state of delirium. And that's the myth that gets sent out there. And then the other thing you mentioned was uh, uh, drug addiction. And once again, uh, if we look at all the crimes that I, I, I deal with, when I, I read all the reports and I look at the rap sheets of the individuals who are involved in them, whether it's a burglary, whether it's an assault, most of the times drugs is involved. These people have a history of drug addiction. And unfortunately, like your uh, more affluent, rich Hollywood celebrity socialite, who can afford to hide or can afford to go to a nice drug program like Betty Ford, Malibu or Passages and do yoga with horses running around. Uh, the people in poor communities have to get better in the middle of Dante's Inferno. And uh, how do you get clean when the drug dealers not only outside of your drug program, but also they pay off security so they can get inside of your drug program and keep you on an endless spiral of addiction. So the drugs, the mental health, and now horrible, horrible policy and laws uh, weekend loss is what's driving the crime, uh, not just in big cities, but we're seeing it happen in all, all over the place. It's a in, terms, in terms of Skid Row and also the flow of drugs coming in first has the, because one thing, one thing that I noticed, we've got a bunch of clients in California and between 2010 and the last time I was really out in a couple of these areas was about a year and a half ago. The, even in what were once good areas, the amount of encampments that you saw it's unbelievable. I mean, it just looks like this homeless population has absolutely exploded. Is it, is it really that much of an increase in terms absolutely. of just, yeah. and, and absolutely. Where, is, where is that coming from? Cause you're seeing it here well, in Phoenix as well, by the way, you're seeing, we're seeing homeless encampments in Phoenix for the first time. And since I've been here since 2007, well, it's coming from what we call the homeless industrial complex. And the, the main participants in that are civil liberties groups, uh, as well as people who are in the social service industry, and they kind of work together. So the civil liberties group comes and threatens every city that if you uh, take down these encampments, we'll sue you because they have sued and successfully won. Uh, 
uh, on multiple occasions. So what cities do, they back down and they're forced to find another way, which is their plan uh, for cities to find other, another way other than through enforcement. So what happens is injunctions get filed and you'll see an encampment grow from two tents to 20 tents. And in Skid Row, the encampments are so bad that it's too dangerous to be homeless. So we went from having Skid Row relatively safe for about six years to now a tent on literally every block, every corner. And of course, we know that most of the people living in the tents struggle with addiction. Two thirds of the people you see on the street who are actually on the street, they struggle with addiction. And that's a fact. That's a dirty little secret that nobody wants to talk about, but it's a fact. So here's what happens. So in places like Skid Row, it gets so bad, it's too dangerous to be homeless. So what a lot of the homeless do, they say, hey, I can't be homeless here anymore. I'm gonna go find another place to be homeless. So they'll set up encampments somewhere else. And that encampment starts to grow and metastasize. And you start seeing the same problems, crime, graffiti, drug sales. And, and it keeps going and going and going and going until just about every city is now impacted or, or, or every city that's too afraid to stand up to civil liberties groups and these activists and the homeless industrial complex, they give in and they lose a part of their city. And it doesn't get better. It never gets better. And I'm sure you're seeing it where you are. Uh, you know, maybe in a smaller volume than what we're seeing, but in, in, in LA, it's a disaster. The policy on homelessness is an absolute, it, is, it enables and exacerbates homelessness. It doesn't, and in my opinion, this is my opinion, uh, based on what I, they don't want to solve it. Somebody's making money off of this, whether it's really? the, yeah, some, whether it's the general contractors charging $830,000 for a unit uh, or these act advocates, it's a job creator. It creates jobs for more social workers. So they don't want to solve the problem. And I, I heard this from an activist, a, a, a social worker herself. She said, we're not trying to solve the problem. But where does that money come from, either on the advocacy side? You talk about the homeless industrial complex, the people that are advocating that are coming to sue the cities. Nothing in this, we live on an economic planet, nothing's free. So how right. are they affording to bring these lawsuits against cities? Where's that money coming well, from? Well, that money, uh, well, you know what's funny? One of the advocacy groups that <laughs> that sues us all the time, they're actually funded by the state. <laughs> so, oh, so, yeah, that's the crazy thing. They get a stipend uh, to basically engage in their activism because uh, I guess it's for the greater good, right? Uh, or it's, it's social work, you know? And uh, so from that, they're able to get enough money to hire attorneys uh, from civil liberties groups and, and they do what's called planting a plaintiff where they'll, they'll basically set up a city uh, for a lawsuit. And sometimes, you know, uh, the agents of that city will screw up and make a huge mistake. And a lot of times they're also in bed with judges. A lot of the judges have a more progressive slant out here. So the judges will agree without even seeing the issue for themselves. They'll just automatically side with the civil liberties groups. And, uh, and that's kind of how that happened. But a lot of these groups are actually funded by the government. You know, which and, is which is absurd to think that you're basically as a taxpayer, you're funding the destruction of your own communities. Exactly. We're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot uh, by continuously supporting. Uh, I'll give you an example of that we had a, uh, a voter uh, 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 initiative called Triple H and it brought one point two billion dollars to quote unquote end homelessness. And when I saw that one of our main detractors were part of the think tank <laughs> or part of a. Uh, the strategy team uh, for the uh, $1.2 billion and how it would be spent. I said right then and there, I said, they're not trying to solve the problem. And sure enough, uh, in the few years that it's been enacted, 
Uh, they've probably spent about $800 million and they barely scratched the surface of homeless. They haven't even scratched the surface. It didn't do anything that it, it said it would do. And then once again, it's too expensive to build the housing. That's why I've always said shelter and housing. Don't just focus on housing because it's too expensive to build. They literally charge $830,000 per unit. You have about 50,000 homeless people in the streets. That, that, that's not going to do anything over 10 years. And it's really, it's a really intricate hustle. And, and until we wake up and realize that, uh, look, here's what I say. The keys to ending homelessness is this. A, you got to have common sense. B, enforcement. The homeless, as much as I love and care about them, and I really do, sincerely, uh, they can't be above the law. No one should be above the law. What happens when the rich are above the law? We have Enron. We have scandal. We have people's life savings. Housing markets crashes. That's what happens when the rich are above the law. What happens when the other side of the spectrum is above the law? We have skid row, and it only metastasizes when they're made to be above the law. And that's what we've done with homelessness. And we cannot control it until we get a leadership shift. Uh, we need new leaders. And that's, that's going to be up to the voters. The voters have to wake up and say, I've had enough. One of the things that concerns me about, because um, you start to realize in, in environments like we've had the last couple of years, that me living my pretty comfortable life and feel like my family's pretty safe and everything else, uh, it depends on you guys. And what you're hearing now is around, around the country, really good cops are like, you know, for lack of a better term, screw this. You know, I'm out of here. How, how much more, and I, I won't talk to you personally unless you want to comment on that, but how much more can, can the good cops that are out there really trying to do the right thing for their communities, how much longer can they take this? Uh, not long. We're already seeing a fallout of that. As you mentioned, we've had officers retire. It's hard for us to hire police officers based on the narrative that you are joining a racist system. So now we can't get young kids who would have been great police officers to even join the force because in college they're being told they've been joining uh, part they're a part of systemic racism if they do. And they bought into that. Uh, now officers, the morale, I've never seen the morale this low. And I, once again, I worked the post Rodney King era. But even during that day, during the Rodney King era, uh, people had enough sense to say, we still need to let the police do their job. Uh, but I've never seen it this bad where I've seen uh, across this country, and I talk to officers across the country, police officers saying, look, I'm going to chase the radio because if I get out there and I get into a shooting, they're not going to support me. Across this country, certain cities are talking about taking away qualified immunity. And what if you took that away from doctors? Do you think doctors would take a certain risk to help save a patient's life if their protections were taken away. Qualified immunity is not here to protect officers who commit crimes. That's not what it's for. But if an officer goes out there and in good faith within the law and does their job and somebody happens to die, he basically can't take their house or home. Uh, but of course, the narrative of quali qualified immunity was hijacked and basically they painted it to where, oh no, I could just arbitrarily as a police officer walk up and shoot somebody in the head and nothing will happen to me. And that's absolutely false, but people bought into it. So now you do have officers who are, for lack of a better term, gun shy about being proactive because they know, A, they won't be supported. And even if they get the suspect, they'll be out of jail within the hour. And that's not an exaggeration. They'll be out before the ink drives in their report. So it's kind of like we're taking a risk to even arrest them. And then if we arrest them, we're out of the field for three or four hours. Uh, you know, leaving the public open to danger and they're going to let them out in an hour anyway. 
So a lot of officers who came on the job to really make a difference and fight crime and try to keep people safe, they're righteously, I think, uh, afraid. And I don't, I don't, haven't lost a degree of respect for them. I understand. For me, you're never going to stop me from trying to find a way to fight crime. You're never going to stop me. So, but I'm not judging those guys because in the end, they have families to feed. And when your own uh, civic leaders label you murderers, when they bail out people throwing rocks and bottles and burning buildings down in front of you, that that gives you a little pause as to uh, you know uh, where your where the support system is, and it's non-existent. Agencies have to be supported if they're going to be effective, and that's just human nature. That's just human nature. Let me let me end with this. So you you're in a uh, high stress job. Everyone I'm talking to, particularly over the last couple of years, you know, pe- pe- the population's stressed out. Man, everybody's fried. What, what do you what do you do? You're you're coming home with a lot more baggage than arguably almost anybody. What do you do to keep, what do you do to keep your optimism in place? To keep your mental health in place? To keep to keep um, because you got to be optimistic. You know, if you if you, if you don't feel like the world's going to be a better place. And what the heck's the point of everything? How, how do you how do you keep how do you keep yourself up? Well, uh, I've had to learn to re- uh, as far as keeping my optimism and keep my head up. Uh, you know, I have to learn to have to learn to empty my cup. Uh, and emptying my cup is being around my beautiful wife and my children who support me one hundred percent. My wife. A lot of officers don't have a spouse to come who come home to to talk about the horrors they see every day or to be able to vent. I have that. And if it wasn't for that, my faith also, uh, I'm a man of faith. I'll never be ashamed of that. If I don't give it to God every morning, uh, I'm afraid to go out there in those streets. But once I give it to him and say, it's in your hands, uh, whatever happens, or, you know, it's whatever, as long as you're with me. And if you're not with me, just let me be with you. I take that attitude and uh, I go out there without fear of consequence for doing what I know is right. And then lastly, my, basically my DNA, my family was involved in outreach and uh, in their community for 47 years, raising 41 foster ch- children in their 47 year marriage on top of three grandchildren and their four children. That's a lot of love to give around, you know, and they were also involved in helping the homeless religiously. And I didn't understand how they would help so many people and they got no rewards. As a matter of fact, they got went broke behind it uh, several times. And I couldn't understand. I said, that'll never be me. I'm going to help people, but I'm not going to let that be me. I ended up being the same way. So part of it is my upbringing. I never saw my parents give up on anybody. So for me, no matter how bad things get, you know, there's something in me that won't let me stop fighting for people or the downtrodden or people who are victims uh, if I can't feel them. Because there are days where I pray, God, why don't you just let me go numb and chase the radio? I just want to go numb. I don't want to feel. But I realize one thing. If, you, if I can't feel them, I can't help them. And, uh, and uh, I'm so grateful for that gift. It's a blessing and a curse. But uh, when it actually helps somebody, the payoff is just absolutely amazing. Well, I'm, I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy as well in the sense I kneel down at night and pray every night. And, uh, and I absolutely will say a prayer for you and, and the rest of the law enforcement community tonight. And I also think that, you know, I do want to end on, because it's a heavy conversation we've had, and I, I knew it was going to be. I'm going to end on somewhat of a of an optimistic note here. I think that you know you talk about people wanting to wake up, and and I or people needing rather to wake up, and man, I think we're close. And this isn't a political statement, one way or the other. Yeah. You know, Democrats, Republicans, whatever. But I think yeah. that people are starting they're, they're starting to recognize that 
even the best, the most well-intentioned ideas. Now, I, I actually do believe that some of our policymakers are putting these in place. I don't think they're well-intentioned. I'll just come out flat out and say no, that. No, 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 no. Um, but the ideas can be attractive to read them, and they can be well-intentioned. But even the most well-intentioned ideas, if they're if they're failing all around you, and and people now are beginning to see, um, you know, being being very concerned about the safety of their own communities things are going to change. And I think they can change very quickly. I mean, I grew up in in New Jersey and we went to New York in the 1980s and early 1990s. And by the time I graduated college and was living there in the mid to late 1990s, the turnaround in that city was dramatic. Um, I agree. I I think, I believe, I got to believe the turnaround's coming. I mean, myself, I'm 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 an eternal optimist. I'm in an optimistic business. I tell my clients, if you don't believe the future's going to be better than today, and what the hell's the point of everything we're doing? <laughs> you know, the human beings, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they succeed, they fail, they learn, they, they adapt and, and they move forward. Um, but I, I agree with you. And, and, and for me, anyway, this conversation has been hugely impactful uh, because we don't, you know, not to say that, that there's not drug abuse and, and domestic violence and all these bad things that happen in the community that I'm living in and that I, that I tend to work in every single day. But, but we, don't, we don't know necessarily how, how dark it can be in other areas. And, and I agree with you. I think people are starting to recognize now, if, if you let that darkness grow and, met, and metastasize, it's going to be in your front door before you know it. And people, people uh, hopefully are going to make, make changes and, and recognize that the people that are hurting in your community, again, watching your videos, it's one of the things that really struck me is, is I 100% believe what, what you say when you say you love these people, because the way they've responded to you in the videos that are out there about you on YouTube you can't fake that. You can't, that's not, you can't bullshit that, you know? Yeah. These, yeah. these people genuinely care about you. And, oh, no, uh, family. yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's, and I, and I believe that at the core of my being, and I think that, uh, to help those communities, I mean, what, what makes, what makes these, you know, I want police in my town, every, every, every wealthy affluent community. I know they, they want safe streets. Why shouldn't, why shouldn't the, uh, the poorest parts and the roughest parts of this country have that, have that same level of protection. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a strong believer in that. Uh, I give my heart and soul to people and I, and I do it because I, I had their mindset before I became a cop. I always tell people the only thing different between me and my brothers and sisters in the African-American community is I saw the other side before I was just like them. Oh, everybody's out to get me, you know, all this other stuff. And when I actually saw the other side and got to see the issue from the other side, uh, you know, I took that ability to identify uh, and with them to a degree. And I walked among them. I didn't just drive my patrol car around, wave and only show up when, uh, when, when something happened. I literally got out of my car and walked and talked and got, got to know them over the years. And I, I knew things were changing based on the names they were calling me. <laughs> of course, when I first started, it was uh, in Skid Row, it was Uncle Tom, Sambo, House Negro, White Man, Boot Licking, Lap Dog. It was actually incredible, the combinations they came up with. Uh, but then over time, when they realized that I was what I was doing was not to them, but for them, right in the middle of my time in Skid Row, the names became uh, funny names like Officer Tight Shirt, Officer Male Stripper, Officer Bobblehead. And then the funny one I loved was RoboCop. And the RoboCop, because I had all this gear on me, and if I was coming after you, there was nowhere you could run. I would find you. People thought I could see through the walls. Uh, <laughs> that's, how, <laughs> that's how good I was. And then now what I love are the names that I've earned now. And these are names of adorations like uh, Uncle, Angel, Officer God Daddy, uh, Big Swole. And now my favorite one right now is uh, when they call me Ram Bro. 
And, and I was talking to I was talking to this one lady on the blog. I said, "Hey, Rambro, Rambro!" Everybody called me Rambro. I was like, "Why are you guys calling me calling me Rambro?" They said, "Because if something happens to us, we know there's a one man army coming to help." And I almost cried. And when I found that out, it was just crazy. So uh, it's a blessing when you get out there and you meet people where they are. You don't judge them. One thing I don't do is I don't judge people. I leave my worldview at my door uh, when I'm dealing with people. And that's what every police officer, doctor, lawyer should do. Look, I'm a born again Christian to the bone. But if a Muslim, a Jew, even a devil worshiper needs my help, I'm going to help them. I am a proud American citizen. I believe in our laws. Uh, but if somebody is undocumented and they're being victimized, I'm going to go balls to the wall to help them. You know, I, you know, I, I'm a, I was a Democrat. Now I'm more of less of an independent. Uh, but uh, let me find out you hurt somebody who's wearing it because they're wearing a MAGA hat. You know, this is America and people should be able to live how they should live as long as they're not physically hurting anybody. Uh, my job, I feel, is to go out there and pr uh, protect the Constitution, people, people's constitutional rights, uh, as well as keep them safe while engaging in it. And I, I hold that so near and dear to my heart. And I really go out of my way to try to make people in impoverished, impoverished communities who've been indoctrinated to believe that law enforcement doesn't care, care about them. I go out of my way to try to make them feel that. Well, Dan, God bless you, my friend. And, and thank you so much for, for spending this time to, to chat with me today. Can't, can't thank you enough. Dion, which is your newest book? Is it Diary of a Skid Row Cop or Stepping Across the Line? Stepping Across the Line. Stepping yeah. Across the Line. That's, uh, that's the novel. The other one, it was more or less a coffee table book people dared me to write based on some of my crazy posts. But, but no, <laughs> Stepping Across the Line is uh, volume one. It details my first 10 years on the job where I came to Skid Row and got to know it. Volume two should be coming out maybe in another year or so. Uh, that's the real nitty gritty of how we lost uh, everything okay. and how bad things are. All right, gentlemen, this has been amazing as kind of a fly on the wall. I, there's so much to take in. Dion, thank you so much for um, your time today. I, now I know why Brent was so excited <laughs> to have you on the show. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, please give out some information on where people can find you. I know that you've got a couple books and you've got another one coming out uh, yeah. not too not too distant future. Where can they find that information? Okay, well, I have a novel called uh, Stepping Across the Line, Volume 1. Now, I admit to everybody, I'm no Ernest Hemingway or Tony Morrison, but uh, you know, I was trying to tell the truth about what it was to be a young officer and coming into Skid Row and discovering these issues that our system failed to uh, address. Uh, so that's Volume 1, Stepping Across the Line. You can get that uh, through my website, www.dionjoseph.org, or you can get it on Amazon. Uh, Kindle. Uh, also, you can uh, find out more about me on uh, Medium, uh, Facebook. There's Officer Dion Joseph page, as well as Twitter. I'm on Twitter as well at Officer Dion Joseph and LinkedIn. Uh, you know, uh, one of my favorites is uh, LinkedIn right now. And it's where I've been able to have some really incredible uh, 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 rational civil dialogue with people who really care, who don't want to fight. They, they, they want to listen and learn from each other. So LinkedIn is at Dion Joseph. You can find me there. Uh, or just my website, www.dionjoseph.org. All right. Well, I'm going to make an offer to the audience right now. Audience, for those that are listening and, and really enjoyed Dion's story, uh, I'm just going to say the first person that emails in and emails Brent, they're, what they took away from this podcast, the most important thing to them, the first one to do that and maybe just kind of open that discussion with Brent, I'm going to buy you that book. So first 10 people to do line. it. First, first 10, 10 people. Oh, see, look at Brent. <laughs> Brent's just topping it. Okay. First 10 to do it. You're getting a book. All right. All right. There you so, go. <laughs> um, I, 
again, I think that that's amazing. I think your story is amazing. I think your story needs to be told as, as well as Brent does, obviously. So, um, again, Dion, thank you so much for coming on the show, Brent. Thank you so much for facilitating this and allowing me to be a small part of it. And of course, to you, the listening audience, thank you for tuning in and listening to the smart money simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. And again, this is such a fantastic one to share. Let them hear a voice that tells it like it is that, uh, you know, cause the media shows us all sorts of sorts of things. And Brent, you've talked about that before that, you know, the media is after the sell advertising. You're not, you're here to tell the truth and bring on guests that are telling the truth. And I appreciate that. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.